0: Hey, deserving listeners. I have a special guest with me today, Lisa Ruddick. She is going to talk about chemical dependency and also the substance abuse treatment concentration at Antioch. But but before we get to that, I just want to start with a little preamble here and, and say that traditionally in the field, when I entered the field in the 90s, I really did get a sense that the substance abuse treatment field was – something completely outside of psychotherapy. There were psychotherapists, marriage and family therapists, counselors, psychologists in, in, that were sort of loosely uh, together, a lot of infighting with, within those groups anyway. And then chemical dependency people were just like this whole other thing. And almost they were looked down on as like, well, they're not real counselors. They don't know what they're doing. They're – they're. You know, this isn't me, of course, but – Um, things I would hear is like, oh, chemical dependency people, they're just, they're just former addicts, you know, leading the blind, leading the blind, or whatever it was that people would say. At the very least, it's just like a, a very big divide. And as I entered the field and started working with actual clients, I realized that a lot of people have addiction issues, substance, substance use issues in addition to the presenting problems they bring into therapy, and or they have family members who have issues with substances. And just by osmosis or experiencing it through that, I became over years and years sort of an expert in in helping people from my uh, vector of helping people as a marriage and family therapist to help people with substance use issues. And I took some continuing ed, and then when I was getting my doctorate, my main internship was actually at a chemical dependency treatment center, and I was one of the psychologists that was there. It was mainly chemical dependency people. And so I really got to know the business during that time, and I think we still need to really work on collaboration and whatnot. But part of the solution, I think, is to have more integration, right? And so Antioch is actually trying trying to do that. And so uh, I wanted to have Lisa on the show today to talk about that because she's really – been spearheading that effort for the past number of years. welcome to the show Lisa.
1: Thanks Kirk. Thanks for having me.
0: So just at the top of the show uh, do you want to plug like where people can find you just right away just to get that out of the way and we can do it at the end like wh- where-, where can people go on the internet to find you
1: um, actually right now I'm kind of in transition interestingly enough for a really long time I had a private practice in Kirkland. Washington, uh, about nine years, I was in private practice. And then my husband and I moved to Austin, Texas for a year, we came back last fall. So um, and I've just started my PhD. So I'm still kind of setting up shop and figuring okay. a few things out professionally.
0: Yeah, people go to Antioch, and you would be in the CMHC page, yes,
1: exactly. Le- yes, Lisa, Lisa
0: Ruddick And you came to Antioch teaching what in the beginning? Uh,
1: you know, it's so funny. I a colleague of mine that was in the same office park where my private practice was, was approached to teach the addictions course. The survey of addictions course was just an intro survey class in 2010. And she jokingly on, in the parking lot one day was like, hey, Lisa, they asked me to teach this class, but you know me. I'm just like not organized enough to do it and you're you're so type a you're perfect for this and um so she passed it off to me and i came in as an adjunct and um, so had you taught before no it was my first time
0: and you were a counselor
1: yeah i have been in the field for a number of years I, i started pretty young um i started in the field around 2002 as a chemical dependency professional, um, I was I worked at United Indians of All Tribes Foundation. Oh. Um, and then I worked for a big treatment center in Seattle for a number of years until I decided to get my master's degree.
0: In counseling. In
1: counseling, so yes, yeah. So
0: to people that don't know, sure. CDP is Chemical Dependency C- Chem- Professional, professional right. which is a state designation. Exactly. It's like a license, essentially. Exactly. And in order to provide chemical dependency treatment, you have to be a uh, chemical chemical dependency dependency professional professional. or a trainee. Yes. And then you also have licensed counselors, which you are also as well. Exactly. Why why did you want to become a licensed counselor?
1: Well, you know, uh, my career's been sort of an evolution. Like I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up kind of person. I sort of just... Kept learning, growing, learning, growing and kind of came into, you know, what was now my purpose. And I'm really glad that I have, you know, found um, something I'm passionate about. Um, But I think what happened for me was I was uh, working in the addiction treatment field. And it wasn't too long into my career as a counselor, as a chemical dependency professional, that I realized I wanted to do more. And in order to do more, I needed a master's degree. Um, And so I pursued a master's degree and got my licensed mental health counselor.
0: More meaning that you were treating people with substance issues and saw additional issues that they were suffering from that wasn't... Your jurisdiction,
1: yeah, and I sort of moved up quickly. I was a kind of a go getter, and so I was a counselor, and then I was a treatment director, and and then um, I was asked to open up a family program, and I think you know that really brought it home for me working with the family members that if I was going to work with the family system, if I was going to work with significant others or couples, or you know, just the ripple out of addiction is huge, uh, generationally. the impact is huge Um, and kids and um, you know you need more education you need to be able to do more and if you're treating the family it's interesting to to treat the person with addiction in a treatment center you get a chemical dependency professional and you can be a counselor to treat the family you need a licensed mental health like that's where they go as therapists and counselors so I I guess on some intuitive level, I knew I have a lot of years ahead of me. I'm capable of more. I love school. I'm going back.
0: Apparently, you're also now getting your doctorate. So you started teaching as an adjunct, and then you started teaching more uh, full-time. Yes. Uh, They hired you on Mm -hmm. full-time. I had had the same path. I was an adjunct, and then I became full-time. And then there was talk with you and Colin about starting a chemical dependency concentration Mm -hmm. for people in the master's program. I suppose people in the society program could take it as well, but, but it's mainly for the master's people. And it's a concentration in which you, in addition to becoming a licensed marriage and family therapist or a licensed mental health counselor, you can take these four classes that's mm-hmm. that span a year. Mm-hmm. So it's it's four quarters consecutive courses. And at the end of that time you can what with that? What what does that well, qualify? Well it
1: the story is kind of a cool story. It's like one of those when the stars align stories. Because, you know, Colin's a very passionate man, of course, and there was he had a lot of pots cooking on the stove at that time and one of them happened to be he was kind of like looking at how can we help specialized tracks for our students so that if they want to start honing in on a specialty while they're in graduate school how do we help them do that and so you know he thought lisa addictions i was teaching more i you know i'd been there a while so he approached me about that and simultaneously what was happening in our state is huge Um, Because the Department of Health was asked to form an advisory committee uh, to look at how to make, this is their language, an alternative learning track for uh, seven different professions. The licensed mental health counselors and the licensed mental marriage and family therapists being two of them. To make it easier for them to become chemical dependency professionals, because you see traditionally what has been the case is, you know, for me getting a CDP and then going and getting a master's degree is just a natural progression. But if you think about it, the opposite, you go get a master's degree and then you get licensed as an LMHC or an LMFT, it's very difficult to motivate people to go back to community college for the 45 credits they need and then get all this other experience stuff to get a CDP. And so the state of affairs in our state is that we...
0: Meaning that it was... You're already working... it. It feels like a step backward. There's also an internship portion, right? Yeah, and that's never
1: going to go away. You need work experience hours, the same as, you know, with anything that you were trying to learn. Was
0: the state worried that there weren't enough CDPs around? Is that what they're. There isn't. Okay.
1: Yeah, there isn't. Um, We really, especially in rural areas of Washington, Hmm. are, you know, Governor Ensley and press releases I've seen and just. He is very pro-integrated care. This move towards or this, hey, come up with an alternative learning, come up with a way that's not, you know, 45 credits of classes that uh, these folks need to to get in order to become a CDP. Uh, because we need more out there hmm. in different settings. So it's interesting the list of professions that are allowed to pursue this alternative learning track. Um, it's nurses, I believe, uh, physicians, LMFTs, LMHCs, uh, licensed social workers. Um,
0: guessing psychologists.
1: Psychologists. Yeah, there's seven of them. But basically, it's reflective of these professions that are coming into contact with addiction. And, you know, in our state, in order to work in a facility and administer anything that would be deemed a treatment and addiction treatment service, you need to be a CDP.
0: Right. So traditionally, and it's... If there's more of a gray area, but to speak in a black and white term, the if if a person came in with uh, what we call dual diagnosis, and, and they were they had an they had anxiety or relationship problems, and they had substance abuse problems, that patient would have to go to two different professionals. Mm-hmm. They would have to go to someone to treat the psychotherapy side, and then they'd have to sometimes go to a completely other building or facility. Yeah. Completely exactly. separate organization for their substance uh, uh, use issues, which is fine on some level, but on another level, it's like, why not have either people integrated in the same office, yes. CDPs alongside counselors and therapists, and or have one person that's capable of doing both
1: exactly and and it's interesting because it's also just reflective of I think the evolution of the of the field I mean I'm huge history buff, I love thinking about history, learning about history. it provides so much more understanding for the way things are, and that's you know history of families, history of our country so And the history of treatment, you know, I I teach quite a bit about in in the survey course because it, it helps students understand why we are where we're at.
0: Well, what is the history?
1: Well, so, you know, once upon a time, and I mean, not unlike mental health issues, addicts and alcoholics were misdiagnosed. They didn't know what to do with it. I mean, they were thrown into sanitariums. They were, I mean, all kinds of strange things, you know, in order to, quote, unquote, treat, you know, people with addiction. And... You know, I think what's what over the course of the evolution of addiction treatment, what what sort of my sense of it is, is that there is like this underlying mistrust in some ways with mental health because they don't always get it. Mm. They don't always ask the right questions. They don't always I mean you know, many of the people that I've had as clients that are in recovery will tell me they went to therapy for years and the counselor never asked them about their using. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of primarily what's causing, you know, a lot of the unmanageability in their life, a lot of the relationship breakdown, you know, a lot of their inability to go for their dreams or, you know, why they're depressed, you know, if somebody's drinking every single day. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that there's been this, you know, it's also influenced by, um, you know, the evolution of abstinence-based treatment, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and there's sort of being this way to deal with addiction that came into being. And so with that went this sort of, I think there's this protective energy. Like we, we know how to do this. We know how to, um, help each other into recovery, uh, you go to treatment you know where you get stabilized there's a saying that treatment's discovery not recovery it's a place to get stable and then you know the abstinence based model is 12 step recovery world will take it from there and you know by and large it is pretty effective mm. i mean there there millions and millions of people you know go on to become you know very sort of fulfilled in their life
0: i have seen it work that model many times and I totally understand and because I've worked really closely with people with substance issues I totally understand that it's a journey it takes Mm -hmm. a long time it's you know there's gonna be uh, falling off the wagon occasionally and maybe even for a couple years you know but you get back on and and it's it's um and but people who go to meetings they just keep going, like they say, just keep coming, and eventually you uh, improve your life, you mm-hmm. know, and how whatever that looks like. I find that when I hear um, on podcasts or in the news on the internet, yeah, and I'm sure I'm guessing you have too. When people talk about AA and twelve step programs, they they talk a lot of crap about it. You know, it's like it it only has like a two percent success rate or mm-hmm. whatever the sure. stat is, yeah. And they're like, it's never worked. And uh, if if that's all we got, then the field of chemical dependency has completely failed. And you know, I've heard a lot of different things a, a, about that, and and I, I'm curious what you think. But just a little snippet of what I think is that people outside of substance use treatment, and maybe even just substance addiction themselves, they just they've never been through. An addi- a massive addiction for themselves, cl- you know them or someone close to them, and they they just don't understand. they they think of it as a medical treatment like mm-hmm. like okay, I have a broken arm, and you put it in a cast, and the mm-hmm. treatment has now worked, yeah um or you have a broken arm and you give someone an aspirin, and that doesn't work, you know yeah. what I mean like it, 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 they're they're basing their they're evaluating the efficacy of the model that you' you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, from a sort of a medical model. And, uh, and when it comes to life and decision and motivation and all the other things that come into addiction, like trauma and, and relationships mm-hmm. and habits and stress and, you know, all those things, it's like, you know, it's, a, it, it's really treating, you know, when you're recovering or getting sober or improving your life, you're you're treating the whole human, you know, spiritually, bodily, physically, psychologically, relationally, you know, and it, it's it's not just like putting a cast on an arm. You can't evaluate it that way. What do you think about when when you have you heard people say? Oh, like,
1: sure. Sure. And I mean, it's it's, it, you know, one of the things we go into a lot of discussion about in and courses uh, in the concentration, uh, I think a few things. One, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about role, function, what happens with 12-step. You know, the founders of Alcoholics Anon- Anonymous, um, Bob Smith and Bill Wilson, they weren't making a scientific treatment. You know, they were two alcoholics who experientially discovered that when they were talking with each other about alcoholism, they weren't drinking. Like, that's as basic as it is. And then they decided they needed some sort of bridge, some sort of process to help newcomers understand how to kind of change into or some path for transformation into how do I... How do I go from the darkness of addiction into the land of the living again? And so their experience was they took these steps and that helped them clean up the wreckage from being, you know, all unmanageable and crazy in addiction, especially in their relationships. So I think it's unfair to compare it or to talk about it in the context of like, you know, scientific treatments and or medical treatments. But that's
0: the world we live in, right? That is
1: the world we live in. Um, Especially now. Yeah. But the, you know, the function of it's like, to go back to your broken bone analogy, I mean, when you break a bone, you you know, and depending on how bad the break, and so, of course, some people are further along in addiction than others, um, or have been active in addiction for longer. You put a cast on, which is essentially going to treatment. You're stabilizing the organ. Like the nervous system is really unstable and it needs stabilization. And a lot of people aren't eating and drinking water and sleeping. I mean, you know, so biorhythms are super off. They haven't had any kind of like normal routine or structure and they literally don't have the impulse control to not use. So they go away and the bone gets set, right? But just because there's a cast on it, I mean, there's a whole bunch of other healing that needs to go in after that. So, you know, AA is one of many ways or 12-step world is one of many ways. But I think bottom line is in order to really heal or recover or transform your life from when you've been living in active addiction, there's got to be something. And it's usually a combination of things that helps that rehabilitation process. How do I go be in relationships when I've been isolated, you know, shooting dope every single day in some, you know, little den somewhere with two people and not even talking, like, because that's, you know, that sometimes that's where people go. It's just a very isolated life. They're, just because they go to treatment doesn't mean they're going to know how to get out and function in the world or do stuff, so.
0: So you started, or you and Colin started this concentration and it is in response to... The new guideline; these new guidelines set out yeah, by, by Washington yeah. State.
1: That was kind of the synchronistic pieces. I happened to be pretty tuned in to what was going on, specifically in the CDP field. And so when Colin approached, we started having these initial conversations. I was like, "Wow, funny you should say this," because uh, you know the timing is pretty. Prime Right now to do that at the graduate level. So I said, let's take our time a little bit and pay attention to what's happening. I went to the advisory committee meetings and just watched the process of them come up with this alternative learning track. And, you know, is very reflective of the history. You know, there's people that were really protective of there, which rightly so of wait a minute, uh, just because you have a licensed mental health counselor and LMFT doesn't mean you know how to treat addiction. So you you definitely need to still get some education and work experience hours. You know, there was a lot of advocacy for that.
0: Meaning that there were people who were saying that mental health counselors should just be allowed to do CDP work without any extra training? Is that what you're saying?
1: Not, I don't think that was ever an idea. I just, you know, when you watch... A group conscious kind of take place in an advisory committee, meeting. of course, there's going to be biases or there's going to be certain people that are, you know, have strong passions about things one way or the other. Oh. And there's a lot of, you know, um, which I think is residual from the history. There's a lot of energy around, uh, you know, like people didn't want to it went from 45 credits to 15. Well, some people thought that was too, you know, that was too few. Yeah. Uh, that there needed to be more, and then the topic areas is another area of debate. Like, what topic areas do you absolutely need to know? Then the work experience was another, and then how those are how those hours are supervised, and so, in what setting.
0: Yeah, I, I would actually argue uh, personally that if I was on that advisory committee, I would have actually asked for more credits as well. Uh, not to say that the people who get this education and um, certification are unfit but it is a complicated area yeah. and, and uh and anyway so so the state let me just clarify what uh, the service that you're providing at antioch yeah. which is yeah. you are offering not only to current students mm-hmm. in the master's program it's like hey while you're getting your master's use some of your electives yes uh you have to take electives anyway that's right and or take some extra classes, just a you know a couple extra classes, and you will graduate with the ability to move on and become a CDP. Yes, and <clears throat> so they have to uh, get uh, actual experience working with working under a CDP. I'm yeah. guessing, right? Yes,
1: absolutely. Yes, that's one of the biggest. Which I'm, I, I'm, you know, as just as somebody in the field that's. That's my specialty: addiction and trauma, and family affected by addiction. I'm really, I was really impressed by the advisory committee. I, I have a lot of respect for the process. I watched them go through. I think it was very fair. Um, I think that a lot of the, it's hard to let go a little bit and change and kind of open up to something new. And I, I just. I was really, I was really glad I got to watch that process happen, and, um,
0: yeah, given but, the history, y- a, a, yeah, it's a it's move towards great.
1: integrated care, and it's a move towards respecting each other and trying to work with one another, yeah. and
0: and I could see how CDPs would be pretty threatened by this because yeah. it's, it's like, wait a second, all the the people who have been stomping on us since mm-hmm. since the beginning, yes, <laughs> with this, you know kind this is a little bit extra education suddenly now they can do all of, they can start bossing us around even more you know what mm-hmm. I mean I, I can imagine that being upsetting to a lot of yeah
1: people. and I think again it goes back to there's that underlying you know there are a lot of people in recovery who are CDPs or working in treatment fields so there is still a little bit of that underlying you better know what you're doing and you I, and i'm holding your feet to the fire you know if, if as a clinician that you know what you're doing and you're competent to work with addiction which i think is is a good thing i mean i don't i i think it's a protective energy yeah, um absolutely. i think also though on the flip side and this is kind of what i've learned and grown into as an lmhc and you know just learning a lot more in the field over the course of my career, is that also, you know, there are a lot of other issues that are accompanying addiction that need to get addressed. Mm. And so, you know, ideally where we're going is more integrated care. That means that, you know, clinicians who are duly credentialed have the ability to track everything that's going on acknowledge everything that's going on skillfully Mm -hmm. which means you're not in over your head trying to bite off something that person that client's not ready to deal with yet and that you also have the ability to help keep you know help with the process of stabilization and keeping it simple early on which is a lot of times what needs to happen and in our concentration we we study a lot about the 12-step world because you know, and, and alternatives to that, because I want our counselors that, you know, are, are, finishing up in our program, I want them to be able to go out and speak all of those languages so that they can tune into whatever their client is working on and whatever's making sense to their client. And if it's 12-step world, they know what's the benefits of the 12-step world and how their client's diving with that. Right. And they don't do anything to get them off track.
0: Right. Because what's different, uh, uh, I'm guessing, about CDPs as opposed to counselors and therapists who also have a a CDP add-on to Mm -hmm. their degree is that the vast majority of cdp's went through 12 step programs themselves
1: i would say uh, you know it's hard to say the vast majority because i don't really know there's certainly uh, f- i'm I've sure i've never a f-
0: met a cdp who hadn't gone through 12 yeah. steps
1: well i'm sure there's a fair amount that did go through a harm reduction pro- could have gone or through or whatever a harm reduction they, program. They, yeah. they've
0: been through treatment but they you know. know it because yeah. a
1: lot of treatment is abstinence based and includes 12 steps so right
0: so it's so that's the best education, right? You go through it yourself. Whereas, much. yeah. Uh, I, mean, there, I would imagine there's a fair amount of counselors and therapists who have no, in my experience as I'm teaching mm-hmm. students, have no clue yes. what 12-step world is yeah. or even harm reduction world. Yeah. And, and so uh, I imagine that that's a difference too. So so just to really get specific, I'm mostly just curious for myself. Yeah, as, sure. As students ask me these questions is, so some of... Some of the interns mm-hmm. will be able to get your CDPT hours at your internship before graduation. Right? Yeah,
1: yeah, it's funny. If, you, yeah. if you
0: find the right location. Absolutely, absolutely. And then yeah. right after graduation, you can qualify as a CDP, correct?
1: Well, it, it doesn't quite work like that. It's a little bit, I actually just recently made a flow chart because it gets a little bit confusing, but it's an important. Question to ask, and one that I think might get hammered out a little bit more as time goes on. It's funny there was a public hearing during the advisory committee meetings, and I, it was the only thing because I'm kind of a, a stickler for details. It was the only thing I commented on as a public, uh, just a public observer, which was that I think that the associate status, the LMHCAs and the LMFTAs, are going to get really confused about how to accrue hours towards both credentials. Okay. And I think that's something the Department of Health will probably be working with people to figure out. So it's very ha- clear if you're already licensed.
0: Okay. So it's unclear if recent graduates we, we, in Washington State, they're called associate licensed people, it's unclear how they can get CDP. It's not
1: unclear how. It's just confusing. Oh. So, so if you think about it like this, um, and, and some listeners, we're just going to be kind of talking shop for a minute, but, but our students, they get done with their master's degree. And once they're done with their master's degree is the point at which they open an a application with the state to start accruing their hours towards license.
0: Yeah. post With grad a hours.
1: CDP, you don't have to complete a degree. So you just have to have started your education credit. So technically speaking, our students in the concentration right now, for instance, are at internship sites, most of them, where they're starting to accrue their CDP hours because they've started their coursework at Antioch. They're going through the concentration. Now, once they complete their degree, it's almost like they're going to put a pause button on that and start pursuing their license hours.
0: Oh. Because they want to get
1: their license first and then they finish up their CDP hours once they're licensed. So
0: That's typically...
1: And the question will be and will kind of remain, can you, you... If you're doing some chemical dependency type services while you're getting your hours towards licensure, could you also count those? Right. And that's the thing I think we're going to be working with the Department of Health to just sort of figure out along the way.
0: Okay. What if the, the, you're... Say you're, you know, you get the, and, and I just want to say before I forget that you also offer to alums or any anyone who's licensed post grad people to come back, absolutely,
1: to Ant- yeah, to come mm-hmm. back
0: to Antioch, take those uh, yes. four classes or however many they didn't get when they were in their master's program, yeah, and and become a CDP as well.
1: That's right. Because, I mean, basically, as it stands, right, those seven professions that are listed in the alternative learning track, those are already licensed professions. Right. So all of those professions are going to be looking for 15 credits of coursework if they want to get a CDP. So ideally, we would want to be opening it up to all those professions as well. Eventually, we're working on a certificate program right now. Um, doing all the steps to make a sort of quote-unquote certificate program, which makes it easier for alumni to access financial aid if they want to come back and do it.
0: Right, right, Um, because they're not matriculated fully. They're they're just for those courses. That's right. So I want to take a break. When we get back, let's continue talking. Okay. Okay, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com, become a patron of the podcast. Um, Okay, so when... People, just to drill down this a little bit further, sure. again because I'm just curious, is that uh, people who are already licensed, like myself, let's just take me. Yeah. If I uh, somehow uh, got into this program and took these classes, and then during those classes or after taking those classes, I would also have to get official CDP training hours. That's correct. Of experience. But while being supervised by
1: that is correct
0: a CDP, okay, and so that's interesting. And then for the for the students, then as they so at internship, depending on their internship, they could actually start accruing their. How many hours do they need?
1: Um. I don't know because I mean I, is it is it I like rely so much when I, I, or I on something? my cheat sheets. It's, I no, it's more than that. I think it's around fifteen hundred is what I want to say.
0: Client hours, I guess. Um, How many client hours.
1: Ooh, good question.
0: That's the main one. Anyway. Yeah, it's, it it's takes a fair a amount of that. Okay. Yeah, it'll
1: take a while. Yeah, okay. the, they'll need to be in a site. And, you know, there's approved, just like LMHC and LMFT, there's approved supervisor criteria, right. that, and they need to sign off on that. and
0: So CDPs with experience, essentially, right? Exactly. Yeah. And th- so the only way they could get their CDP right after graduation is if they had a job under a CDP would that work
1: um, well the reality is is very similar to the LMHC status when they start doing even internship at while they're in grad school if they're at a site for instance that's a treatment center I have a, a few students at treatment centers right now that are in the concentration what you do is you open up a CDPT, a trainee application. And as soon as you've opened up that application, you're saying to the state, just like you are when you go get your LMFTA or your LMHCA, right? You're you're opening saying, I'm in the process of accruing all of these requirements to get this. Right. So they can do they, they have to do that. in in fact, if they go internship at a treatment site. Right. whether they're going to do it or not. they it's a requirement to be a to trainee yeah. Yeah. and once they're the trainee status again they can if you know they're you know all of their hours are being supervised by an approved supervisor an internship and it's they're delivering and administering chemical dependency services then they can start accruing those hours towards CDP. And then once they've graduated, this is where I think we'll be working with students and they'll be working with the Department of Health to figure out and, and the, you know, basically the information I've gotten from the Department of Health is it's going to come down to the supervisor that is supervising the hours. Right. Will need to be in place in order for. And then also what the agency is billing the hour for. So if the agency was billing the hour for a chemical dependency service, that could count as an hour towards the CDP. Mm -hmm. If they're billing it for mental health, that will count as an hour. So students will have to sort of keep track of, you know, if I'm working 40 hours a week and 10 of them are committed to doing CD groups at my site and the other 30 are being billed out as mental health, then I'm going to be putting 10 hours down slowly getting my CDP hours yeah. and 30 slowly getting my...
0: Seems logical to me. That's
1: kind of the what's going to be happening for the duly credentialed folks. And yeah. I imagine there's going to be some hiccups. I mean, keep in mind, these rules just came into effect 2016. Right. So uh, I don't even know. I mean, they're probably just getting their first batch of applicants. And institutions just like ours right now are still in the process of making these 15 credit concentrations or programs so folks can pursue, you know, the alternative learning tracks. Very new.
0: What other universities in the area are offering this?
1: I believe Seattle University has a program. I don't 100% know the one. I, I don't know. Um, with a hundred percent certainty ones that are actually up and running. Okay. Um, but again, it's, you know,
0: it's, but Antioch really got on the cutting edge. We
1: did, you know, I mean, it, again, like the stars were aligned kind of thing and it was really synchronistic. The timing of Colin and I starting to talk about that. And then, you know, me attending those meetings, the rules going into effect and yeah. it just all kind of fell into place really well. So
0: what's the feedback from the students?
1: Uh, so far, my first group is really liking it. I, I, um, you know, it's interesting because obviously I've never created a program for an institution before. So, um, it, it's been a real process, a, a real growth and learning process for me to create courses. Yeah. And there's this, I have such a deep sense of responsibility to the program and to the students to do such a quality program. And so well, I kind of put like a, a lot into it.
0: You're kind of like a little chair in, in a certain way.
1: In a way, yeah. I mean, it's, you kind of, I mean, I'm, I created the thing and I'm, you know, when any new program is new, it's small. Yeah, so yeah. it doesn't, there's, it's not, you can't justify having more than one person on it. Um, but, I mean, so far, so good. You know, we've, there's, the survey class is the first class that you take, and that's actually a required class for CMHC students. And then there's four other classes. And, um, you know, so far when I've looked at evaluations and feedback, the students are really liking it and getting a lot out of it. I think the ones that are pursuing the concentration as interesting are the ones that really get lit up in the survey class. Like, and it's funny because I watch students sometimes come in and they're like, I don't want to touch addiction with a 10 foot pole. I don't, This is like, so, and then, you know, they start learning about it and realizing, oh, actually, you know. Th- I'm not going to be able to avoid it, (laughs) A, Uh, and and B, when you start to understand it and start to explore it more, and even, you know, one of the assignments in the survey class is to go to a 12-step meeting. I mean, that's probably one of the most awakening, transforming learning experiences for students. They have so many misconceptions and assumptions and biases, and they go and they come back and they're like... I wish I had a place like that to go. I mean, so it's just funny to watch, but I watch or I watch some of um, the passion light comes on with working with family because we we do spend a lot of time in the survey class looking at the family system as well. And towards the latter part of it, trauma, because these two things go hand in hand. And so I think that, you know, the people I watch students wake up to, this could be who I want to work with.
0: Wow. Yeah, it is weird how students will have this weird bias. Mm-hmm. It, it, society must be giving the general public a lot of messages that make it feel distasteful or un, not preferred mm-hmm. or something. Because I hear that a lot too, uh, and, and whenever I advise, and I I've always advised students from the beginning, because in the in the MFT program, they can. It, it, we call it the abuse elective series where they can take uh domestic. Oh yes. Okay. Can, yeah. So they can mm-hmm. take the, uh, they choose between the domestic violence course or the addictions course. And I'm always telling people, look, they're both important. And if you have time, really take both of them. But if you really have to choose one, choose the addiction one, because it, the percentage mm-hmm. of your clients who will be suffering or someone close to them suffering from a substance issue, what, in my anecdotal experience, it's much higher mm-hmm. than those who are suffering from a domestic violence issue. Mm-hmm. Domestic violence and, you know, uh, intimate partner violence is really quite common uh, and abuse is common. But I, I, the other thing is, is I, I think that without a class in addictions, you will be completely ignorant mm-hmm. of what is happening. Yeah. Whereas with intimate partner violence, it's not, It'll it'll get talked about in other yeah. courses, you know yeah. what I mean? And and so I'm always say, hey, you know, if you if if you if you're on the fence, I recommend you take the addictions course. I took the addictions course back in the day, back when Lisa Erickson was teaching. Oh, me.
1: sure, yeah. She,
0: you must have been replacing Lisa. With, I think so, <laughs> and because she taught it for twenty some years or something, and and she's been on this podcast actually talking about gifted children, but. Uh Yeah, I took it back in '96 with uh, with her and had a very similar experience. Mm-hmm. You know, just just like whoa, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. Every week it was light bulbs going mm-hmm. off. You know, I just, and I, and they had us go to twelve step meetings. I went to an Al-Anon meeting, if I remember right. And you know that experiential mm-hmm. time in those groups. I'll never. I mean, this was twenty two years ago, and I remember. Yeah. Like. Events that happened yeah, in that yeah. Al-Anon meeting, yeah. you know, and it's, it's so it's yeah, it is very eye-opening, and that's interesting to hear you say that because I think I was one of those people. Yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting. So that so in that class, people are like, "Huh, I think I want more education in this." And yeah,
1: that. yeah, and especially with trauma. I think that um, you know I've been really, really fortunate to have a lot of really great teachers. Um, I'm a level two sensory motor psychotherapy, um, graduate and then level one internal family systems. And it's a very compassionate, um, they're both very compassionate, loving approaches to treating trauma and also very scientific. So I think the combination of, I mean, for me, which I've then sort of been able to, I think, impart to students is that you, you know, to be able to expand your capacity for compassion around these conditions and also simultaneously understand the science behind it, I think it really helps students at the end of the day almost kind of feel more confident around, I could do this. I think it kind of is a scary, overwhelming thing mm-hmm. at first. It's like this. I don't understand it and it's scary because I don't get it. What are they doing? And I don't even know what I would talk to somebody in the room who was struggling with. Like, what would I even say? That's just, I don't even get it.
0: Well, and they've seen episodes of... Uh, what's that Dr. Drew...
1: Celebrity see? Rehab.
0: Yeah, where everyone's screaming at each other and there's super chaos and it's all played up for cameras and stuff like... That. Well, what did you think of that show? That
1: is Inpatient Treatment. I mean, it's... it's I mean, I have to
0: admit, I've only seen, like, five minutes of that show, so... I uh, think
1: it's the just, I don't understand what's going on. Okay. Or, and, or, I'm focusing so much on the, like, you can really focus on it in, in a way in which... It's sort of like, you know, watching reality TV. You're like, oh my God, these human behaviors, like wow, right. how crazy. But I think again, if you watch that and and we do watch quite a few things together as a class, um And I actually have used some celebrity rehab clips at, because if you can watch it through a different lens and you can watch it through a look at this nervous system attempting to regulate itself mm. and desperately trying to grab onto something and look at the relationship dynamics and how this person, this is the only way they know how to relate. It's the, it's the only they're living out of survival skills most of the time. Mm. A lot of if you really just turn the volume down and watch the body language and watch that, it's a lot of living out of fight, flight and freeze. I mean, and just blowing each other up (laughs) and then nervous systems resorting to fight, flight and freeze over and over again. So, again, you know,
0: and then they turn to the substance to calm their nervous system or
1: yelling at each other or sleeping with each other or stealing each other's stuff or lighting something on. I mean. You name it. I mean, that's inpatient treatment. You ask anybody that's worked in residential treatment and that's a daily, it's not just a TV show. I mean, it's any of the centers. It's, there's a lot of interesting stuff that goes on on a daily basis because the nervous system, it's been relying on addiction as its main way to deal.
0: Right. I,
1: that's been taken away. Nothing's replaced it. Yeah. So.
0: And you know, you let me know if this makes sense. The, the, uh, A common story, a common history for someone who uh, ends up in treatment or ends up in my office talking about various different things in addition to substance issues is they were neglected or abused as kids and uh, have complicated relationships with attachments and have self-esteem issues. And then they go into adolescence and you know, have trouble regulating their emotions. They have, Mm -hmm. they have trouble with impulse control. They have, they have, they have trouble with their self-esteem. They have trouble with eating. They have trouble, you know, just various different things. And, you know, for all of us, you know, just thinking back when I was 14 years old, it's like, you know, I would frequently have meltdowns, Mm -hmm. but feel like I was old enough that I should be able to handle it on my own, you Mm -hmm. know? And if you were traumatized, your meltdowns are going to be uh, much greater, mm-hmm. right? And you're going to, and if you traumatize, you're typically in a system where you can't really depend on other people, and so uh, you, uh, through trial and error, you discover maybe that, huh, when I drink alcohol, or mm-hmm. when I smoke a cigarette, or when I, you know, use heroin, or when I buy this this Percocet from my friend and I take it. Or I borrow, you know, they give me a Percocet and I take it. Suddenly, all my problems have washed away. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I feel better. I'm relaxed. I can function. Mm -hmm. And okay, you know, and and it, it and maybe in your teenage years it gets bad, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just like a mild issue. But then that just progresses over time. Meanwhile. You still have frequent fight, fight or freeze yeah. reactions to things because you're a human being and, mm-hmm. and you've never been given a chance to develop functional ways of soothing yourself through grounding or hugging or talking That's or right. yeah. trusting mm-hmm. or deep breathing or mm-hmm. b- believing that the world will calm down if you just wait or mm-hmm. just, just don't use... Your Percocet, you know, just yeah. just hold on, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and and it just builds and builds and builds, and you know, substances <clears throat> tend to uh, take its toll. They're cons, right? T- you know, every everyone wants to sort of just sort of maintain their life. Everyone wants to have a good life, but uh, you know, you're at work, you're working at Amazon, and you're uh, popping pills or shooting up heroin uh, during your lunch break or something. And you overdosed slightly, mm-hmm. and you're too droopy eyed at at the meeting, yeah. and the boss is looking at you mm-hmm. and going like, "What's going on?" I mean, mm-hmm. these are people I treated, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and you're like, "What? What do you mean? What do you mean?" You're like, and the person's like, "Oh man, I took too much in, yeah. in the bathroom. Yeah. Okay, I gotta, I got And then you cut back, and then you're more agitated and irritable, and like, like, oh god, you know. And and it just it's this constant thing where you're mm-hmm. always Torture. trying, yeah. And then you. Think, well, maybe I should cut back and maybe I should just go cold turkey and, like, really. And then not only are you dealing with withdrawal symptoms and just all the horrificness of that, but also, you know, and habit withdrawal, also, but also, again, all that trauma and emotional regulation issue comes back because uh, you haven't been given a chance to develop other coping skills and uh and then you start pushing people away because yeah. people are looking mm-hmm. at you like yeah you're a flake and mm-hmm. how come you didn't come to the birthday party and you didn't because you were worried that mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to shoot up or you're too ashamed of your shooting up and so you slowly isolated yourself and now everyone's just like well screw that guy mm-hmm. and like now you're truly alone and uh, you're truly ashamed and it's like what's the point of even moving on i might as well just use heroin like mm-hmm. what's the that's the only thing i have left and 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 it just spins out of control.
1: Absolutely. And that, you know, that's the thing about, you know, there's it's kind of a both and with other issues and addiction. Now, you know, you you could some people will try substances and progress in sort of the manner that you just described. You know, that's one sort of story of progression that you just illustrated. And at some point in that story, right, what happens is it it develops a life of its own. Mm. And addiction is kind of this dominant, it becomes this sort of dominant set of neuropathways that's really running the show. And so I think competent addiction treatment is understanding what you're dealing with and how loud that condition is so that you're actually prescribing something that's going to contain it.
0: And CDPs... Don't necessarily know how to treat trauma, correct?
1: No, I. I mean that's the thing. It. It. That's where on the other end of things, they're not. Well, it's not in the scope of practice. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not something that their credential.
0: It's a complicated thing. Exactly. I mean, it's so.
1: You know, I think
0: so. The perfect person is someone like you.
1: Well, for the for. more complicated parts and of the journey. Yeah. Uh, because in the beginning, you know, the nervous system can't, it, it, the nervous system can't handle a lot. It can't even handle day to day roommate interactions and in treatment, let alone processing like the deepest pain. So, you know, stabilization, fortunately, much of the stuff that treatment centers do is quite in line with what you would do in phase one of trauma treatment. Yeah. You know, regardless of your client had addiction or not in phase one of trauma treatment is stabilization, because most people, if they haven't developed an addiction and they've got pretty complex PTSD are doing something else. They're cutting their suicidal, their relationships or I mean, there's some level of crisis many, you know, much of the time. So stabilization in sort of the gold standard of trauma treatment is phase one you know you're making sure your client it's like you you can't expect clients to run a marathon i mean they right. got to learn how to you know do a mile and feel pretty comfortable doing a mile they're not winded they're not you know three miles they got to learn what they need to resource themselves you know when do i need water when do i need to pull out an orange slide like they There's a training of sorts that goes into really doing, you know, more Mount Everest type of work with um, attachment injuries and trauma. So, you know, that does take a lot of skill. And I have had hundreds of hours of extra training and trauma as well to feel competent in dealing with that. But I would say that um, many treatment centers are becoming way more trauma informed now and really even soliciting guidance from some of the leaders in the trauma field to be on their boards and to help them make programs that don't do anything to aggravate the nervous system unwittingly Uh you know and that they incorporate more types of things into stabilization uh treatment of addiction that are conducive to stabilization treatment of trauma and both of them go hand in hand really you know quite well in fact Another aspect of that is, um, one of the books that, um, is the assigned reading for, uh, one of the classes in the concentration is a book that, um, was written by, um, her last name is Merrick and I'm just blanking on her first name. Uh, but she wrote a book that explains 12 steps, um, and adaptations you can do for clients with trauma. And it's an important, things like that are important to, to know because that's where the integration comes in that's where we're able to pull everything that's already been working really well and just do it in a really conscious way and factor in the other stuff we've learned about mental health issues and trauma and attachment injuries
0: cool so a lot of uh novice therapists will have I would say universally, this somehow this thought gets into their head, and I was curious what you thought of it. Is they will say, "Well, my client who came to me at, at first, they wanted to talk about their relationships, or um, they were struggling with depression or something." Mm-hmm. But I just realized that that they're drinking every day mm-hmm. at night, mm-hmm. and and so I can't treat them. I have to refer them out. You mm-hmm. know, I have to. I have to. Uh, ethically speaking, I have to cut off treatment from them. Uh, And they'll say, isn't that true, Kirk? What Mm -hmm. what would you say to that?
1: Well, it's one of the goals of the survey class. Um, So the class, the intro class that our L M H C students and many of the CFT students take is Not that they're going to be competent in treating addiction, but I want them to know what to do if it comes into their office and to feel confident in the way that they handle it. Now, I'll tell you, as somebody who was in private practice, most of the clients that I would have where I would stumble upon, oh, wow, you're using a lot. Like, let's explore this. And we spend some time exploring it. How's it impacting? Come to find out it's impacting life quite a bit. My work usually transitions into getting them into treatment mm. I don't really treat addiction individually mm. you know I there's so much that has to go into I know that life transforming that it really becomes more about what's stopping you from doing what you really need to do here mm. um, and, but would
0: you like say you got to get out of my office no. Like I can't, I can't talk to you anymore.
1: No, of course not. No, I would, I would do a lot of psychoeducation and I have, I mean, many of the clients I've seen that I've stumbled upon and I think they're stumbling upon as well. Wow. You're looking at, you have active addiction, you're in active addiction. It'll just transition into me helping them come to terms with that Mm -hmm. and then being in reality of what they actually need to do if they want to make a change. Mm -hmm. And, and so a lot of times, you know, I sort of partner coordinate with treatment centers where they'll go to treatment for a while and then they'll come back. Mm-hmm. And I'll be very sort of aware of what they're doing while they're in different phases of their treatment. And, but no, I'm just very candid with them about what I feel competently I can, like what I can help them with and what I can't. Um, we study, um, the, uh, Gabor Mate a lot. We, we look at a lot of his talks and, um, his book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, is one of our texts in the survey class. And he's he he's made something along these lines, I'm not quoting directly, but um, something, he says things in the camp of, you know, addiction is the opposite of connection. And I think there is a lot of truth to that. Uh, and so what I've noticed is if it's, in what you, if you look at most treatment centers, whether it's outpatient or inpatient, you'll notice it's done in groups. Mm-hmm. There, There's a lot of um, because people become very isolated in addiction, even if they're around people, they have a very distorted sense of what's going on with themselves and other people. And so in my experience, uh, that is paramount in Connecting. recovery, connection, getting peer feedback, starting to tune into people again. And it's not just something you can wake up and do. I mean, group is a lot of practice. 12-step world, that's a lot of practice, like a little microcosm. They give each other feedback, a lot of it. (laughs) You know, you're really off the beam. What's going on with you? In a way that family can't. The the family relationships are so loaded at that point, and there's so much mistrust, and there's so much breakdown of... Just basic health in, you know, and family members need their own help and support. So to get back, you know, to get back to a place where they're feeling better about life and feeling so.
0: Well, there's a formal nature to treatment groups Mm -hmm. that develops a culture Mm -hmm. around being honest and, and, and it allows for tough questions to be asked that in normal society Mm -hmm. are almost never asked. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: And, it, and it's sort of sad. I mean, when I'm just reflecting on how we are as a society now, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we're we're kind of, we are kind of missing that a bit of yeah. that, just that more community sense or more connection, more. Totally.
0: Well, it's stigma, it partially. I mean, it. I have a friend who's actually really su- suffering from addiction uh, ongoing. And I'm, I'm, I've just been thinking about like, what what kind of questions would I ask him if we were both in a treatment group together as mm-hmm. participants, or I was the therapist or whatever. And I'm just like, there would be so many things I'd be saying to him and yeah. so many questions yeah. I'd be asking. Whereas in regular society, because we have so much stigma around it, it's taboo to, yeah. to bring up. And, and, and even though I know better, mm-hmm. I still don't bring it up with mm-hmm. him. I still, I don't, I don't, Ask him about it because mm-hmm. I, 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 it feels so strange. Yeah. Because he's not bringing it up with me and, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing it wouldn't go well, you know. Mm-hmm. But if we were in treatment together, I'd, and we were both participants, mm-hmm. I'd just turn to him and I, I would just ask him. That's right. You know? Exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. It, there's so much shame. It's just, there's so much shame and so much self hate uh, yeah. uh, when, you know, just the little sort of story you told about a client, you know, I mean, you can see how the shrinking away, you know, shrinking away, pulling away.
0: Yeah. That's the one thing that I think I learned kind of the hard way in my personal life over the years, which was that the effectiveness at which people can pull away Mm -hmm. and how insidious and pervasive it is, you know, it's, it's, it, it, you know, they basically just become a ghost and they're like invisible and, and because I would see it as a therapist, mainly how I would see it as a therapist would I, I would have an a, an adult or a kid who would be complaining about their mother or father mm-hmm. who would make promises and not yeah, be there or yeah. who would not show up to graduation <sighs> yeah. or not show up to the recital, even though they said they were going to be there, yeah. and then I would talk to the person struggling with substance and they would say, "How I really wanted to go, mm-hmm. you know, and, well, but you know, I, my car broke down or yeah. there's, a, there's always mm-hmm. some excuse and it would always be believable, mm-hmm. you know, like they're, there's, they're very good at coming mm-hmm. up. They they develop a, like yeah. a very effective way of, of smoke and mirrors yeah. to the point where people who were married to them mm-hmm. were Surprised that they were using the whole time, you know. Like, oh, absolutely. They're just like, so you've been using uh, crack cocaine for the past—it's
1: unbelievable. Yeah, five
0: years—it's unbelievable. And 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 it's like, how did I not know that? Mm -hmm. It's because you know, people in order to hold on to that, they become very good at. Yeah, absolutely. Being able to make it so that that isn't threatened, right?
1: Yeah, and have and almost start doing it with themselves as well right. and I think that's what people don't realize is like it, it isn't a it isn't a conscious wake up in the morning I'm going to destroy everyone's life like, <laughs> right, right. and my own like I'm making right. this decision it's this sort of slow boil yeah. and yeah it's
0: a it's slippery slope kind mm-hmm. of thing it's like it's like well just you know I just need to take the edge off today mm-hmm. and you know my wife, yeah, she, exactly. She gets all up in arms cause you know, she's uptight about that. And you know, I just won't bother. And look her. at all
1: the stuff she does. She spends so much money or she does this. I mean, there's this, this constant little, rationalization. It's
0: my, it's my little special time for exactly. me. And, and you know, just a little I work bit it, hard. It'll take, take the edge off, you know, and, and everything will be fine. And then, you know, five hours later, you're still not mm-hmm. going home because mm-hmm. you're too worried about being too high or something. And, And you're just like, well, okay, you know, and and there's just all this rationalization because, as you were saying, the nervous system needs it. Yeah. And when the nervous system needs something like it'll it'll forget about it. It's on the
1: survival list now. It's like, what am I going to end? Then the fear around and the pain and the physical pain. See, So some substances, people actually start to fear being in withdrawal more than anything else. It's like that state is so uncomfortable and they become more dysfunctional not using. Right. Well, that's
0: why there's, you know, methadone and all that kind of stuff. And then
1: you're just locked in and, and that's where it's just torture because these you know, they can't get out. It's like, you know, so in some ways it's interesting because I've done a lot of assessments over my career. And if I had a nickel for every person that cursed me out after I told them, I think you need to go to inpatient treatment. Like, that's the only thing i think it's going to help contain things at this point how many times i've been told you know f you i can't believe and just people parents yelling at me the person yelling at me and then five months six months later coming back you saved my life because they can't get out of it they need really somebody to pull them out
0: and their reactivity is because you're threatening. Absolutely,
1: their... it's it's like saying you you can't eat anymore. I right. mean, it, it's on that level, right. you know, in their body, it's yeah, terrifying.
0: Yeah, or or even something even far short of that will cause people to get really angry, which I've experienced in my personal life before too. Just like you know, I I this is goes way back, but I had a really close friend who. Just smoked pot like all day long like woke up in the morning and and i didn't it didn't bother me it didn't i didn't care it didn't it was it wasn't a thing to me but i remember i i said something like i i think I said something like could you just not have the smoke like in my car or yeah. like in my room or could you just like not have the yeah You know,
1: like with the same energy as because you stop leaving your towel on the floor, right? Like, it's like a thing that just like keep it,
0: just you know, go for it, but Mm -hmm. like keep it out of my lungs, you know, sort of thing. On because I'm just walking around in my house, right? And he, it's this flip switch to him, and he targeted me. mm -hmm. It was like at the at the end of it all, I, I felt like an abused mm-hmm. husband or something. It was you like, would, yeah. I was like, how did this conversation get to attacks on my character? Isn't
1: that I you know? You
0: know, I and, know. And like, I feel so destroyed right now. And like, what just happened? Yeah, because you know? it it was. I didn't expect a fight. I that's expect right. him to just be like, "Oh, okay, yeah, cool. yeah, cool. I'll pick up my towel. No biggie." Yeah, or or that's, j- or you know what? I don't want to pick up my towel and you know or and go away. You know, just some kind of. But it, it was such a threat to him that he decided he was gonna he was gonna make sure that this never came up again. Yeah, you know what I mean. And, and he, he just went for it. Yeah, <laughs> and like,
1: you're describing you know the day to day life of a family member and they their nervous systems get completely out of whack as well and their sense of a relationship and what's trust and what's safe and what's and then you know if you're growing up around addiction can you imagine developmentally as a child you know as you're sort of forming your self-narrative and you're getting these like hostility about like really arbitrary sort of strange things and really dysregulated volatile emotional states and you know why is dad hugging me so much and then he's yelling at me the next minute and it's just it's very difficult to form any kind of like solid internal what's what yeah (laughs) so you can see why there's a lot of attachment injury and why there's a lot of trauma in yeah. these families and you know Claudia Black said that you know the rules of a family that where there's addiction is don't talk don't trust don't feel yeah so there's a lot of unwinding and keep in mind many clients with addiction grew up around it yeah. so there's the compound fracture there right which again is why you know I sought more education and continued to do it because eventually when people are stable you know the lion's share of clients i had in my private practice were people that i've been in recovery for several years Mm. and it's really interesting thing that happens in fact i really would love to write on this at some some point in time um middle-aged recovery because it's people's lives come back and they start having kids Mm. and they start getting careers and they start pursuing dreams and what i think happens is it taxes their nervous system in a way that sort of is beyond the coping they've learned in aa or 12 step or anything from treatment it's like it will start to kick hornet's nest of unresolved stuff Mm. so i would have lots of people come into my practice and go at least i don't get it like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing in my program. I'm working with other people, going to meetings, like all these good things are happening. Why do I start? Why am I feeling like I want to use or why am I thinking about it again? Or I'm having all kinds of weird stuff happen in my relationships. And I said, I think your unresolved stuff's coming a knocking. Like yeah. it's sensing your nervous system stable enough to kind of take it on now. And I think, you know, for people who grew up around addiction and then they become a parent, it starts to trigger them in a way that it's kind of a, oh my gosh, I don't know if I have the capacity to do... They don't have anything to pull from. Uh. It, it There's nothing there as a frame of reference, you uh. know? So it starts to really kind of max them out emotionally and psychologically. And so, you know, I would walk a lot of people through kind of building those capacities out and kind of simultaneously having to really face, you know, the stuff that's been haunting them probably all their life. Mm
0: -hmm. As a therapist, when I, uh, this happened to me just last night, I was with some friends and they, uh, and they, and with their friends who I didn't know. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And one of them, I think asked me what I did or something. And I, and I said, and then I, you know, there are some jokes like, oh, are you analyzing me? And, you yeah. know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and so, therapists, you know, it's a common reaction to us. Uh, <laughs> to chemical dependency people in our society, uh, I'm guessing you either get a similar or worse Kind of reactivity. It's it's like oh like yeah you know what like are you judging me because I drink a glass Mm -hmm. of wine you know Mm -hmm. like what what do you think about that stuff?
1: Yeah, that's funny you say that because I always wonder like you know being even the like the, the instructor the person like in professional settings or whatever that teaches addiction like even that association I wonder how self conscious people become of like you know. Oh, is she looking at me, like assessing me right now or whatever? Right. I think, you know, I think it's hard. That's a hard part about being a therapist and a teacher and a specialist on certain things for sure. And like being around peers and Because, you know, interactions
0: and, a lot of people drink and yeah. there's and pots legal in, mm-hmm. in Washington now. And, mm-hmm. and so and people uh might imagine if they were on say a d h d medication mm-hmm. legally mm-hmm. they might think that there's some judgment legally, there yeah. or something about that yeah. like so what would you what do you say to them do, I mean, do you say anything like uh yeah, I am judging you or <laughs> or what do you say
1: um it's interesting, you know because i don't there's I mean, the reality is it's really only like one in 10 people that has addiction. Like, and there's even a fair amount of the population that would really not meet criteria for addiction um, that could have some problematic use at some point in their life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's another thing we look at again in the survey class is like being able to discern or even have some sense of how to organize your thinking around what's addiction and what's problematic use and what's just normal recreational use because there is a fair amount of that i mean there's you know and many nervous systems have absolutely no abnormal reaction to it it doesn't impact people's lives it's fun you know Mm -hmm. it's just something they do at a party or you know on vacation or you know even to unwind at the end of the night you Mm -hmm. know but it's really not impacting their life Mm -hmm. there's not psychological stress over it there's not it's enhancing life it's giving something it's not taking something away Mm -hmm. um you know i think when it starts taking something away and creating more stress than it's like you know it's not really relieving it's problematic when it starts to dominate people's lives and Mm -hmm. completely erode the fabric of who they are and everything that they hold dear we're looking at addiction
0: so to make it a little concrete because i'm I'm guessing some of the listeners might be thinking about this is, you know, where is the line? Of course mm-hmm. there is no firm line, but, yeah. but, and you're mentioning it in terms yeah. of harm or mm-hmm. affecting your life in a bad way, um, which is, you know, the general guideline that people follow, but that's yeah. kind of a squishy area. So it's like, right. So you have someone who has, one glass of wine at dinner, mm-hmm. obviously, and nothing bad happens for that because they have a typical reaction to one glass of wine. Yep, uh, no biggie, no biggie. Uh, someone who uh, drinks uh, enough once a month and has a mild hangover the next mm-hmm. day is—is is, are we heading into problem use at this point?
1: I mean, not even necessarily. It's not necessarily, and it's interesting because. There really isn't unanimity in the field around this. Mm. Like, I mean, in the DSM-4, we had two different categories: we had chemical dependency and we had chemical um, abuse. So we actually had an abuse category, which I sort of liked because it it, it was it was different criteria, and it sort of gave. Some description to what was going on but it was also a way to describe it in a way that it it wasn't saying you're addicted right you know but it was like this is a problem you're having conflict about it a lot of times those clients for me are people that are going through something and what will happen is they'll get into therapy and we'll start dealing with the something and they find less and less need for it Mm. because they're dealing with the something um whatever that might be. I mean, sometimes it's a life change. Sometimes it's a partner left or, you know, there's something that's going on and they're coming in and they're like, I don't know what I'm doing, you know, or what, you know, God, I'm drinking a lot and there's conflict around it. And, um, once we start working through, you know, so, um, now in the DSM five, we have substance use disorder, mild, moderate, severe. So depending on how many criteria you're hitting, Mm -hmm. And for how long, you know, in your history.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but to qualify for a mild, you only need like two. There's like
1: two or three of the list. Yeah. 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 Now, I think. It's a very low threshold. Right. right? They need to be happening for a year. So there needs to be some some time lapse where you're. It's not like I had this one six months where I was just, you know, I lost my job and I would. It's got to be going on for some time. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, there's a little bit more room to. It's hard because I do really think there are some people that I wouldn't say are addicted there, but they're having a problem with it for sure. Um, And that's a hard thing to discern. I mean, sometimes you get it wrong. That is just the reality. You know, sometimes you you err on the side of, well, let's err on the side of it is and put in treatment and see what happens kind of thing, because better to err on the side of safety. Yeah. Um, But you can have conversations with clients around that. Like you're on the line. So yeah. what do you want to do? I mean, this is what I'm suggesting. What do you think? And you can have.
0: Right. Yeah, I. that's what I do. It, 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 people often will, before they really have the wisdom mm-hmm. of people who actually work in the field will have, or someone who's been through addiction themselves, I suppose. The, uh, the notion often is like um, there's use that is. Totally okay, yeah. And then there is use where it's totally not okay. Yeah, you know, there's this mm-hmm. there's this line you cross and you become a you know street bum and you're you know yeah. you're homeless and you yeah. you know everything is horrible and and um and the 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 real reality is is that it's a spectrum. Uh, it's a, almost like a philosophy to some extent. It depends on how you want to live your life. Mm-hmm. It depends on. Uh, you know your choices cuz mm-hmm. you know as a therapist we could offer opinions right mm-hmm. we could be like well i don't know it, it kind of sounds to me like if you cut back i th- would imagine your life would get better yeah. y- in these ways yeah but you know it's it's just suggestion and and if the client says well uh, you're probably right but i like this life mm-hmm. <laughs> i like drinking four nights a week and and getting You know, pretty drunk every Mm -hmm. every night. And yeah, it is hurting my liver. And yeah, it is giving me hangovers. And yeah, it is making it, you know, it's harming my brain. and It's harming my health. And it's right. uh, Occasionally causing me problems with like, shopping online at midnight or something,
1: (laughs) which many people do. I mean, I don't know a ton of people that. Go to treatment I mean They they exist But More often than not There's some External pressure The manageability Gets to the point Where they are Being intervened on By work Or their spouse Is ready to leave Or They do have The third DUI I mean Addiction is a really powerful condition right. and and people that is one of the hallmarks of addiction is used despite negative consequences
0: and it just gets worse over yeah, time. it's
1: just like that's not impacting them yeah. I mean the the what they're getting out of it or or how it's dominating their life and their nervous system far outweighs. that's far more powerful than any of the pain associated with consequences
0: right right uh, it, My point is that it's up to the individual to decide and as as helpers we're on the outside providing opinion and, and trying to help and, tr- you know, trying to off, offering our own viewpoint and perhaps paving a, or, or laying out a path that is achievable with work that mm-hmm. at the end, there's going to be pain, no pain, no gain. Absolutely. And better but,
1: that you level with your client. I yeah. usually tell them there's absolutely nothing you're going to really like about treatment. Yeah, like, it's right. not fun. It's, yeah.
0: Yes. And sobriety is but, boring but at but times. Worth it. And, yeah.
1: yeah. But worth it. If right. You right. In,
0: in the end. Right. Um, but at the same time, there's no morality board that, that, decrees no. you have a problem and it's, you know, it's a conversation and it's an evaluation and there's opinions. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think about Christopher Hitchens, Do you know, Christopher yeah, Hitchens I and, do. and he drank, I don't, I don't know if you know, he notoriously, I don't know much
1: about his personal story. No, he
0: was notorious for drink for drinking all the time, every mm-hmm. day. And he, I can't remember the exact, I don't I don't know him that well, but I think he was talking about how, in order for him to write, which he was a wonderful writer and thinker, mm-hmm. he had to be drinking. Mm-hmm. And his and then he ended up dying kind of mm-hmm. young. Like yeah, that's 55 right, fifty-five or okay. S- yes, know. this
1: is actually coming back to me. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: and I think it was mm-hmm. related mm-hmm. complications related to his alcohol use. Mm-hmm. And again, I could be <laughs> getting this wrong, but from my memory, I think he was saying he was cool with that he's mm-hmm. like i'd rather die young and be an interesting and have an interesting life mm-hmm. you know buzzed mm-hmm. and and that's my choice than try to not do, yeah. try to not drink and mm-hmm. add on another 20 years to my life i'd rather i'd rather go this way yeah. than you know and you know i just remember thinking huh okay well he's a smart guy and he he's probably thought about it and mm-hmm there's probably some denial in there on some mm-hmm. level and, and some lack of hope for anything better. But he made a choice, and that's yeah. that's his choice yeah. to make. If yeah. he's willing to live with the consequences and he's seeing it with open eyes, mm-hmm. then, you know, I can respect that.
1: Yeah, it is. It's. It, I think it's just, in general, an interesting like thing to talk about in our field or just as clinicians. Like, right. yeah, there is this element of philosophy like what is my quality life? of life is right. not your quality of life right. and you know even i i think that even happens with clients i mean i've had to struggle with that and grow with that and get a lot of feedback on that and think about it a lot with clients of like because i work with a lot of traumatized um people with traumatized nervous systems and Sometimes they get to the point where it's like, this is good enough. Like, I never thought I would get to a place where I could go to sleep at night without the TV or the radio. Like, Mm. thank you for all the work we've done. Mm -hmm. I'm good. You know, and I'm thinking in my mind, like...
0: There's so much more. There's so much
1: more. Like, you know, but that's that's where they're... I mean, that is, like, good enough. And, you know, the rest of the monsters in the closet, I can just leave there and I want to move on. I have other clients that are super passionate about i am going to seek the truth about myself (laughs) until the day i die i mean you know and they will be probably in some form of either therapy or self-discovery or learning or you know journey for the so yeah it's an interesting thing and say yeah and same with you know with with people that have addiction that might be it's it's one of the reasons I really like Gabor Mate is he kind of says sometimes the unpopular thing, you know, and um,
0: like what? Well,
1: there's some things that he brings up that, you know, are, are um, he has, I think, a very compassionate uh, view of humanity in general. And I think when there's a lot of compassion just coming from, you know, an elder, um, there's a lot of acceptance for. And nonviolence, you know, it's just like, th- this is the human race and some of us are really struggling, you know, yeah. and on a lot of pain and
0: rather than having a, a
1: standard or yeah, wh-
0: some sort of hard, like you need to stop exactly using you piece of shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that there's enough of that going on exactly internally and in society that as Clinicians, we don't need to add to right. that.
1: And it doesn't necessarily mean. Also, like for me, I'm always asking myself as a clinician, like, you know, I also want to watch that I'm not colluding with a part of my client that's just dominant, yeah. And then no other part of them is getting any air st- air time because right. I think that happens in people as well, where it's like. Uh, I am going to go toe to toe with this part of you today because yeah. I think it's just dominating the system. And the, the, there is other parts that are like kind of trying to get a voice. Like, I don't know if I like this life, you know, right. and I kind of do want more. And I don't know if I kind of do want to try to be closer to people or, and, I, and for me, especially clients with addiction, I feel like part of my role or responsibility is to listen deeply enough to make sure that that entire person is getting heard, Mm. um, and acknowledged. And it's certainly easier not to go toe to toe with the part that's really sort of full front hostile guarding the addiction because it's hard work. It's, it's taxing. Yeah. Uh, but I think if you have good teachers and you watch people that are good at group process with people that are struggling with addiction too, because I had a lot of good teachers and a lot of good supervisors, um, you start to see that in some ways that system's begging for you to do that mm. because they can't do it for themselves right. in that moment, you know, in time in their life. They need somebody to go toe to toe and say, you know, challenge, you know, and and. <laughs> And I think it's an interesting thing because, you know, the feel, the addiction treatment field sometimes gets characterized in, and the, this is definitely the style of some people as this like hard confrontational, like you need to get sober or else. I think that's a style of some counselors, but there is such a thing as therapeutic confrontation, mm-hmm. you know, where, um, you know, counselors can skillfully, lovingly, compassionately challenge yeah. those addiction neural pathways. Yeah. Because, you know, they aren't... I don't know... Be I guess be careful. Don't assume that's the entire person speaking.
0: Well, and as you're saying lovingly, it's... Uh, and I feel like uh, throughout my life, I've basically been mostly conflict avoidant, mm-hmm. which is why I'm not a C- CDP, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it,
1: it, look, that's a good point, seriously, yeah. because you, you... Especially to do group.
0: Yeah. And and so... Uh, it's been a long journey for me as a therapist to learn how to confront and mm-hmm. and when and how, and in uh, what way and what's the vibe that I have as I as I do it. And I feel like just recently I feel like I, I had another step forward because I've started to directly confront. Um, students actually oh yeah Um, this doesn't have anything to do with addiction but
1: kind of though uh, I I can in a sense
0: yeah but the um, and I think I pulled it off Mm -hmm. um, from evidence that I thought oh you just really confronted that student I wonder if she's going to hate me now. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah. from the looks of it, uh, mm-hmm. you know, she doesn't hate me. And so, uh, and I did it. Um, <laughs> and, and I, in the middle of class, yeah. you know, in a way that in the past I never would have done right. it. I, I would have been, I would have just been like, ah, eh, that's a little too mm-hmm. much right now. and mm-hmm. Or I don't know how to pull it off. But I think the key is, is what you're saying is, uh, in a loving manner, yeah. you know, there's a way that you can, quote unquote confront someone or, yeah. or just be honest in a loving way it's it's a vibe that you give across and it's the intent mm-hmm. that, absolutely. that you have you're not trying to humiliate someone or no and you're or, not
1: protecting yourself because yeah. i think that's when it can get like when you get in power struggle or you're like you do have an agenda or an idea and they're not just doing it and so then you get into an argument and then it's like this confrontation that's like yeah. kind of an argument i think it's more of uh You know, I like I hear what you're bringing to the table right now, and but I'm not buying it, and I'm not buying it in a way because, or with with sort of what's in my heart because I want to you know make sure that the whole of you is getting listened to right now, and you know that's why I really liked learning about internal family systems, Dick Schwartz's work because it's parts and Mm. it's so much more. It's, it's such great, compassionate language and it's so much easier to get clients to start to look in at themselves mm-hmm. and makes therapeutic confrontation so much easier mm-hmm. by just saying, you know, there's a part of you really coming at me right now and I just want to like t- take a minute, check in with yourself. Is there any other part of you that has like a different view of what's going on right now mm-hmm. or is there any... Anything else inside that needs some, you know, some airtime right now, or mm-hmm. any other part? It's like it encourages them to be the mindful observer with you, mm-hmm. so that you know it's not all on you. Yeah, uh, and super helpful.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks, Lisa. I think we could talk yeah. forever, but let's, know, let's, huh? let's <laughs> put a pin in as so, well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, if you're interested in Not only getting a master's degree in in counseling or therapy and or art therapy, drama therapy, and you want to also become a CDP, then you can come to Lisa Ruddick at Antioch University Seattle and get all your needs met. If you're a a licensed clinician post-grad and you want to become a CDP, you can also come to Antioch. Uh, and they're working on that have you had any post we've work? had
1: some requests yeah and so i've kind of just started a little bit of a list i mean we're really hoping to have the certificate program which is a way for would the,
0: it be separate from the concentration it
1: won't it would, it'll be like a blended thing and okay. once the i think that's details we're still kind of having to fine tune based on it, kind of numbers and logistics but um i think what's happening now is the people that have come forward and are interested i'm just sort of putting on a list and keeping informed. We're hoping to have the certificate program by the summer or the fall. Okay. So that's a little bit of a process, but certainly reach out.
0: Cool. And you can become, uh, eventually through supervised experience, able and competent and qualified to treat people with their substance use issues. In addition to all the other competencies and, uh, capabilities that you have as a therapist or counselor, which is, you know, really something that society needs apparently. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess bottom line, you could also make a fair amount of money because you know, more, more clients can come to you and you have more uh, employment opportunities. Absolutely. You you know, and there's absolutely
1: more marketable.
0: Right. So I think that's another benefit to it as well. And it's really not that much extra work.
1: It's really not. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, you yeah. know, to be duly credentialed. I, and I mean, especially if you think that's something that you're going to want to work with clients with addiction or their family members or be able to work in different settings. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
0: And when you go to dinner parties, you can <laughs> stand up and point fingers <laughs> while, with, with beer in one hand and your pointing finger in the other hand. You can be like, you all got problems. <laughs> I right. i don't have a problem. <laughs> All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, Lisa.
1: Thank you, Kirk. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks, everyone out there, for joining us. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.